Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. And the guys have some Bibles so that you can follow along as we look at that passage in a bit. If you need a Bible, get their attention as they make their way to the back, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked at 2 Timothy 4 for you. Sometime back, I did a couple of lessons in our second hour, Discovering God Hour, on passages of Scripture that commonly are misinterpreted and misapplied. First on that list was Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, which says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, that verse has become the motto for many in a culture whose chief virtue is tolerance. It's misinterpreted, as is the case with all misinterpretations, because it fails to take into account the context. Just after giving that command, Jesus went on to say that before you correct someone else, you must first look at yourself. So he said a bit later in that chapter, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, please notice that Jesus is not prohibiting judging. He's prohibiting a particular kind of judging, namely hypocritical judgment. In fact, he even says here, once you've evaluated yourself, then you can help someone else remove whatever issue it is with which they are struggling. Help them then remove the speck from their own eye. And he goes on to say in the verse after that, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, in order to obey that, you have to be able to distinguish dogs and uh, pigs. You have to be able to identify dogs and pigs. Or to put it another way, you have to make a judgment. In fact, in order to even accuse someone of judging... You have to make a judgment about them. So Jesus is not condemning all judgment of others. Far from it. Jesus says in John chapter 7, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. The Bible says elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Our culture recoils from pronouncements of truth or statements of certainty, for that suggests that someone who believes different is wrong. And we can't say someone is wrong because, of course, that would be judging. But the New Testament writers had no such qualm. And especially the most prolific New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul. When he saw error that endangered the well-being of God's people, he did not hesitate to say so. And sometimes he said so in the strongest of terms. The entire book of Galatians is a polemic against false teaching written by the Apostle Paul. And the false teaching at issue in the churches of Galatia was that we still need, they said, the law of Moses in order to have or maintain a relationship with God. And Paul says that that's contrary to the true gospel message. 
In the very first chapter of that book where he takes that false teaching on, he says this. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And as part of their attempt, these false teachers attempt to convince Christians of their need to be under the law, they taught that circumcision was still necessary. And Paul saw this as a danger to the freedom that is in the gospel And so he says this toward the end of the book. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You know, I just think it's a good thing that we have children's church here. (laughs) For our elementary age kids, some of the passages in the Bible are at least rated PG-13. That would be one of them. You see the strong language that Paul uses there. Many of us would say, how unchristian. My theology professor in seminary used to say, many Christians believe they're more Christian than Christ and more pious than Paul. One commentator says of that passage, his, Paul's sentiment sounds to our ears both coarse and malicious. We may be quite sure, however, that it was do neither to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge, but to his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. I venture to say that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. A few years ago, I saw a satirical article That was titled, If Paul's Epistle to the Galatians Was Published in Christianity Today. (laughs) If that polemic, those six chapters, with that kind of language, was published in Christianity Today. And in this satirical article, they had these letters that would come into the editor. After Galatians appeared in Christianity Today. Dear Christianity Today. In response to Paul D. Apostle's article about the Galatian church in your January issue, I have to say how appalled I am at the unchristian tone of his hit piece. Why the negativity? Has he been to the Galatian church recently? I happen to know some of the people in that church, and they are the most loving, caring people I've ever met. Dear editor, how arrogant of Mr. Apostle to think he has the right to judge these people and label them accursed. Isn't that God's job? Regardless of this circumcision issue, these Galatians believe in Jesus just as much as he does, and it's very pharisaical to condemn them just because they differ on such a secondary issue. Can't we just focus on our common commitment to Christ and furthering his kingdom instead of tearing down fellow believers over petty doctrinal matters? Can't you hear it? goes on. Dear C.T., I've seen other dubious articles by Paul Apostle in the past. And frankly, I'm surprised you felt that his recurrent criticisms of the church deserve to be printed in your magazine. Mr. Apostle, for many years now, has had a penchant for thinking he was right to, quote, mark certain Christian teachers who don't agree with his biblical position. Certainly, I commend him for desiring to stay faithful to God's word, but I think he errs in being so dogmatic about his views to the point where he feels free to openly attack his brethren. His attitude makes it difficult to fully unify the church and gives credence to the opposition's view that Christians are judgmental, arrogant people who never show God's love. It goes on, dear Christianity today. 
Paul Apostle's diatribe against the Galatian church is just more of the same misguided focus on an antiquated reliance on doctrine instead of love and tolerance. Just look how his hypercritical attitude has cast aspersions on homosexual believers and women elders. The real problem within the church today is not the lack of doctrinal devotion as Apostle seems to believe, but in our inability to be transformed by our individual journeys in the Spirit. Evidently, Apostle has failed to detach himself from his legalistic background as a Pharisee, and he's unable to let go and experience the genuine love for Christ that's coming from the Galatians who strive to worship God in their own special way. One more. Kind editors, I happen to be a member of First Christian Church of Galatia. And I take issue with Mr. Apostle's article. How can he criticize a ministry that's been so blessed by God? Our church has baptized many new members and has made huge inroads in the Jewish community with our pragmatic view on circumcision. Such a seeker-sensitive approach has given the Jews the respect they deserve for being God's chosen people for thousands of years. In addition, every Gentile in our midst has felt honored to engage in the many edifying rituals of the Hebrew heritage, including circumcision, without losing their passion for Jesus. My advice to Mr. Apostle is to stick to spreading the gospel message of Christ's unconditional love and quit criticizing what God is clearly blessing in other churches. And then they have this editor's note from the editors of Christianity Today. Christianity Today apologizes for our rash decision in publishing Paul Apostle's expose of the Galatian church. Had we known the extent in which our readership and advertisers would withdraw their financial support, we never would have printed such an unpopular biblical truth. We regret any damage we may have caused in propagating the doctrines of Christ. Now, why am I telling you all of this? And how does that relate to the series that we've been in for six weeks now in the book of Job? Well, this morning and next Sunday and perhaps the next Sunday or two, I want to warn you about some false teachers whose doctrine actually rears its head in the book of Job. We've seen, if you've been with us for this series thus far, that Job lost his possessions and his ten children in a single day. On another day, his body was afflicted with sores from head to toe. The first two chapters of Job tell us that he was an upright man whose calamity had nothing to do with any wrongdoing on his part. But we've seen that his three friends pay him a visit, and those three friends were led by a man named Eliphaz. Each of the friends applies their understanding of how God works to Job's situation. In particular, they apply what's called the retribution principle. We've talked about that in prior weeks. The retribution principle says that each person is retributed, rewarded, or punished based on what they've done right or wrong, good or bad. If you do right, things will be good for you. If you do wrong, things will be bad. And then, conversely, if things are going well, it must be because you're doing right. And if they're not going well, it must be because of something that you've done wrong. We've seen that the Bible teaches in Job and in other places that the retribution principle is not absolute. For example, God's grace, by definition, is given to those who do not deserve it. And suffering is often simply the result of living in a fallen world, not something 
that we've done to deserve it. The false theology of Eliphaz and company lives on today in something called the prosperity gospel. And the purveyors of the prosperity gospel are all over the airwaves and are often referred to as televangelists. The televangelists teach that if you exercise enough faith, that if you think and talk positively enough, or especially if you give enough money, then God will bless you. In effect, they are saying what Eliphaz and friends said to Job, if you do it right, it will come out right. Unless you think I'm stretching this connection between Job's friends and our present day Eliphaz's, the televangelists. One commentator in a book called How to Read Job says a proper understanding of the retribution principle offers yet another argument concerning the bankruptcy of certain popular evangelical movements such as the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. The scripture passages used as proof texts for the prosperity gospel are invariably based on an unnuanced reading of the retribution principle that views it as a propositional truth that offers promises that are to be claimed. Simply put, Proverbs are not promises, and the retribution principle offers no guarantees. Now, each week we supply for you an outline. We have that outline inserted in your program so that you can follow along during the message. If you've not gotten that out yet, I encourage you to do so now. We're only going to get to the very first point, I think, today in the outline. We'll continue that next week. And we won't even get to that first point for a bit as yet. But I want you to see at the top that the title of today's message is Eliphaz and the Televangelists. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we're profoundly thankful to you for talking to us, speaking to us, communicating to us, revealing yourself and your purposes and ourselves in the pages of Holy Scripture, your word. Lord, help us then to be people who honor your communication to us. You've given it to us so that we may know you, that we may know life, that we may know truth, and we may live by it and bring glory to you, the purpose for which you do all things. So, Lord, it is paramount then that we honor your word, that we test and we weigh every claim to truth, that we be discerning people, and that we divide truth from error, and that we hold on to that which is good, and we abhor that which is evil. So, Lord, we ask you to help us then in these next few weeks as we think about this issue of discernment, error that is being propagated in our day, and how we may be affected by it, and how we might be able to help those that are. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as I said, I'm going to be warning against some false teachers in the church today, and especially false teachers on the airwaves, and I'm going to be naming names. So I want you to be clear that calling out false teachers by name has precedent in the Bible itself. I mean, before you become more pious than Paul, 
And you say, well, how unchristian is that and all of that? I just recommend you remind yourself of what Paul himself has said. Here's one of the things he has said. Some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. But he doesn't just leave it as these unidentified some. The next verse he says, among them are... Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These guys are contemporaries then of Paul and of those who would be reading this first letter to Paul's protege, Timothy. They were known to Paul. They were known to the readers such that Paul felt he needed to warn them. And now they have been memorialized in the pages of Scripture for nearly 2,000 years by name. Hymenaeus gets mentioned in the second letter to Timothy. This time teamed with Philetus. Hymenaeus and Philetus have departed from the truth. And I could give other examples in your New Testament of names being mentioned of people to be marked and watched out for because they do not teach consistently with the gospel of Christ. And as your pastor, I think it's necessary to call these prosperity preachers out and identify them by name in order to protect our church. Now, some of you may never watch or listen to these people. Good. But the truth is, our congregation has many spiritual ages in it. That is, different levels of spiritual maturity. And that's a good thing. It means we have people who've known the Lord for many years and others who have come to the Lord more recently. And there are many different church backgrounds represented at CBC. So you may not have been a Christian for very long or you may not have been in a church that taught biblical discernment. And when either of those is the case, it's easy to fall prey to anyone who calls himself or herself pastor or is associated with a so-called church, or has a so-called ministry. It's easy then to just look at it and say, well, hey, it's all Christian, right? They're using the Bible. What can possibly be wrong with that? Well, see, do you understand, friends, it's not all Christian just because they use Jesus' name. Peter warned of false teachers in Second Peter, he said, there will be false teachers among you. They will smuggle in destructive heresies. Notice they will secretly smuggle them in. It won't be advertised as this is the heresy hour. It will say Jesus and Bible and have all the code words that will attract gullible, undiscerning believers. And Peter goes on to say, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories like of miraculous healings and so on. Now, I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy 4 because this is yet another place where the Bible warns of the danger of false teachers. And it says in verse 1, In the presence of God 
and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now this, and I get moved by it every time I read it. It's the last chapter that we have from Paul that has survived to us. These are the last words of Paul. He says in verse 6, The time of my departure is at hand. He will shortly after writing these words be executed for Christ. So does it stand to reason that whatever he says in these last words to his protege Timothy as he passes the mantle to him just before he knows he's going to be executed, this is what's most important. What's most important is preach the word. What's most important is to be aware that there will be false teachers who come in among you. And the antidote is still preach the word. And he says in verse 1, I give you this charge. That's a term that's connected to the legal world. And it can mean to testify in a court of law. Or to command a witness to do so. It's used in the New Testament of any solemn and emphatic utterance. One commentator says the charge itself is found in verse 2, preach the word. The message young Pastor Timothy is to communicate is called a word, a spoken utterance. But it is the word, God's word, which God has spoken. Paul does not need to specify it further because Timothy will know at once that it's the body of doctrine which he's heard from Paul and which Paul's now committed to him to pass on to others, as chapter 2 says. What you have heard from me, you are now to commit to reliable men who will be able to teach others also. It's identical with what's called the deposit of chapter 1. And in this fourth chapter, it's equivalent to the sound teaching of verse 3, the truth in verse 4, and the faith in verse 7. It consists of the Old Testament scriptures. That chapter 3 and verse 16 says are God-breathed and profitable, which Timothy has known from his childhood, together with the teaching of the apostle, which Timothy has followed and learned and firmly believed, according to chapter 3. The word that's translated preach 
is Caruso, which was used of a herald, one who carries the message of another. And so he's to proclaim it like a herald in the marketplace. He's to lift up his voice without fear or without favor and to boldly make it known. And verse 2 goes on to give the characteristics of this proclamation, of this preaching. It's to be an urgent proclamation. He says, be prepared in season and out of season, whether it's welcome or unwelcome. It's to be an urgent proclamation and a relevant proclamation because verse 2 says, correct, rebuke, and encourage, depending on what it is that is needed. The Scriptures chapter 3 and verse 16 tell us, just a few verses before, are profitable, they're useful, because they address all situations, either in precept or in principle. So that indeed the person with the Word of God then is equipped to correct, rebuke, or encourage whatever is needed. It's an urgent proclamation, a relevant proclamation. It's also a patient proclamation. He says to do this in verse 2 with great patience. The message is of urgent importance, but it's going to require patience because the fruit of preaching is brought about not by the preacher, but by the Lord. The pastor's responsibility is to be faithful in preaching the word and the results of the proclamation are the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. And then he says it's to be an intelligent proclamation. It's to be urgent and relevant and patient, but intelligent. He says, proclaim the word with careful instruction. That, that word instruction is teaching, with careful teaching. So whether we are using the word to correct, rebuke, or encourage, it is to be a doctrinal message. It's to teach truth. Now why? Why is all that so important? That's what it says. That's what Timothy is charged solemnly to do, but why? What's the basis for this command to preach the word urgently and rele- relevantly and patiently and intelligently. There are two reasons given in the passage. The first is in verse 1. Timothy, you do this, but here's why you do it. Because of the coming of Christ. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, verse 1, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. That is, Timothy, it is he, Christ, who has given the commission to preach. And so it is him that we will have to give an account to for our preaching. So you do it as he has called you to do, and you do it in a way that's described in verse 2. Preach the word. Have an urgency about it. Speak to the need. Have relevance about it. Be patient with it. And teach in an intelligent, doctrinal way. But a second reason that Timothy's to preach the words, not only that Christ is going to judge the living and the dead, including Timothy, and me, and you, Not only that, but there's a second reason, and that is the contemporary scene in Timothy's day and in our day. Verse 3, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
And instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so this is saying whether people are listening or not. (laughs) You see, they're going to turn aside. There are going to be some who listen, thank the Lord. There are many who will not, but whether they're listening or not, whether the message is welcome or unwelcome, what is needed at all times is the preaching of the word. And Timothy was living in times of unwelcome, and so are we. And frankly, so has every Christian and every preacher, because people do not naturally want what God says. We get that? We do not naturally want what God says. And so in all ages, they look for teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. When verse 3 describes those with itching ears, it's an itch for novelty. The standard Greek lexicon, your New Testament was written in Greek, says that the expression of itching ears is a figure of speech for that kind of curiosity which looks for interesting and spicy bits of information. This itching is relieved by the messages of the false teachers. In fact, what the people do is stop their ears against the truth and open them to any teacher who will relieve their tickle by scratching it. Oh, man. Does that describe our day? We have teachers all over the evangelical landscape who offer a religious version of the American dream and people are eating it up. Many of the largest churches in America promote the prosperity gospel. Churches pastored by the likes of Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Frederick Price, Creflo Dollar, and Kenneth Hagin Jr. It's not just in America that these charlatans are having their impact. It's all over the world. All over the world. Joel Osteen's program is available in 100 countries. Joyce Meyer's website says her TV program reaches two-thirds of the world and has been translated into 38 languages. In Nigeria, 96% of people who were asked agreed that, quote, God will grant material riches if one has enough faith. 82% in India agreed with that, 71% in Guatemala, 90% in Kenya and South Africa said faith in God is an important factor in economic success. The message of these false teachers is variously known as name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, health and wealth, word of faith, the gospel of success, positive confession theology, or as I and others refer to it, the prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen has 40,000 people attend his weekend services in Houston. He promises, as in the title of one of his books, that you can have, quote, your best life now. He has no formal training in theology, but he has the largest church in America. What does that tell you about what people want? 
And as John MacArthur has pointed out, if your best life is now, that means you're going to hell. (laughs) Because heaven's better than this life. So if this is the best one you're going to get, guess what? But the prosperity preachers are not focused on heaven. They're focused on what you can get here and now. The core message of the prosperity gospel is material prosperity. And you can have it. In fact, they say it's God's will for you to have it. Now, they somehow have to deal with the simple life of Jesus and the apostles. That's given in the Bible. So if it's God's will for you to have all this stuff, I mean, why didn't Jesus get the memo on that? But the late Oral Roberts and many others of the prosperity preacher ilk denied that Jesus and his disciples were poor. Oral Roberts wrote a book called How I Learned Jesus Was Not Poor. Creflo Dollar thinks that since the soldiers at the foot of the cross were gambling over what he believes to be Jesus' expensive robe, Jesus must have been quite wealthy. He says, quote, when you go to the scriptures, there is no way you can conclude Jesus was poor. T.D. Jakes, whose personal fortune is estimated at $100 million, and whose books and posters you'll find displayed prominently at family Christian bookstores. T.D. Jakes has suggested Jesus was rich since he had to support the apostles. Robert Tilton believes that being poor is a sin because God promises prosperity. The prosperity preachers teach that Christians need to give generously because when they do, God gives back more in return. And so your giving then is not just a spiritual investment. That's what you thought. I hope that's what you thought you were doing when we passed the hat a bit ago. It's not just a spiritual investment. It's a financial investment with a better return than Wall Street or even Bernie Madoff could ever promise. Gloria Copeland, wife of heretic Kenneth Copeland, says, quote, give $10 and receive 1000 Give a thousand and receive a hundred thousand. What the Bible says is a very good deal. Well, yeah. Kenneth Copeland stated, you just need to realize that it's God's will for you to prosper. This is available to you, and frankly, it would be stupid of you not to partake of it. Paula White the twice-divorced female pastor, sometime girlfriend of married Benny Hinn, and supposed spiritual counselor to Donald Trump. Some claim that she led Trump to the Lord several years ago. When you see the evidence of that, share it with me. And Paula White asks, do you believe that God wants you to live in abundance and the overflow of his goodness, his mercy and his provision? God is not magnified when you're broke and busted or disgusted. In their view of God, then, the Lord is most glorified when you are satisfied in your wealth. Until all God's people then are wealthy and healthy, the Lord does not receive the glory that's due his name. 
The idea that we should honor God despite our circumstances is absent from the prosperity gospel. Creflo Dollar. Guy has a great name, doesn't he? (laughs) Says the word of God is your highway to the world of wealth. If you take the seed of God's word and put it in your heart, then wealth and riches will be in your house. Seek out people who are sent with the message of prosperity to break the poverty chain. In other words, follow the prosperity preachers like Creflo Dollar. At a gathering of the prosperity gospel faithful in August of 2009, and you remember what the economy was like in 2009, reflecting on the downturn in the economy, Gloria Copeland preached, quote, God knows where the money is, and he knows how to get the money to you. Jerry Savelle, a disciple and friend of Kenneth Copeland, added, quote, Anytime a worried thought about money pops up in your mind, the next thing you do is sow. Stop worrying and start sowing. That's not S-E-W, that's S-O-W, sow. And he says that is God's stimulus package for you. So so by giving money, giving money to who? And then you get the return. And for the most successful prosperity teachers, this formula, of course, works. Because the sowing, this money is going to them. And so it works and their followers see their success. Numerous prosperity teachers are millionaires and they have extravagant tastes. Take, for instance, Joyce Meyer. She boldly says that God made her rich. She tells her audience, quote, if you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. I am now living in my reward. Friends, the prosperity message is in captivity to the American dream. And American greed has been spread to other countries in the form of this perverted gospel. And of all the many, many errors of the prosperity gospel heresy, some of which we're going to look at in the next week or two, the basic and the most serious is their heretical teaching regarding God. Regarding God himself. We're only going to get to this one point today. And just briefly. But in your outline, the first point is this. False teachers distort God. False teachers distort God. Lots of ways that I could and I will share with you. I'll just give you a couple now. T.D. Jakes is a oneness Pentecostal. I don't expect that many of you will know what that is. But here's what it means. Oneness means really a denial of the three and the tri of Trinity. Oneness. So it means he believes in an ancient heresy called modalism. Because God is not three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but three manifestations or three modes that he appears in. 
Benny Hinn said at one of his crusades, I feel revelation knowledge coming upon me. Well, this is important, right? Revelation. Something's being made known to you from God. And then he says, each of the members of the Trinity are a Trinity themselves. Quote, what I'm saying is there's nine of them. And that was revealed to Benny. So then a few weeks later, he was asked about that claim. And his response was, quote, that was a dumb statement. Now, does anybody know what the Bible's prescription is for a false prophet? It's death. That's how seriously God takes someone saying, God is talking to me and make a statement in God's name that is absolutely false. False teachers distort God and they distort him in a number of ways. I'll just give you the first today and then we'll continue next week. They devalue God. They devalue God. You may be sitting here thinking to yourself, how can anyone believe in these con artists? You may have said that in your in the past, having seen them on TV. You know, this guy or this gal is clearly a P.T. Barnum, a snake oil salesman. It's obvious that they're only in it for the money and they're ripping people off. So how can anybody believe in these con artists? But let me just ask you this, friends, to ponder your own heart and my own heart. What if it what if it worked just theoretically? What if it worked? What if it really worked that way? If you could give to God a thousand dollars and you get a hundred thousand back. Then why would you follow God? What if you did get some monetary benefit from your service to God? You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see how alluring that might be. Now, thankfully, and hopefully most of you are not gullible enough to believe that. And I really hope, dear friends, you don't send money to these people. You ever heard of the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? The screw tape letters. Uh, screw tape is a demon. And he has a nephew demon named Wormwood that he's training in demonry. That he's training in how to be an effective demon. And how to thwart the enemy's plans. And the enemy to the demon, of course, is God. So throughout the screw tape letters, the enemy refers to God. And screw tape, this chief demon, this veteran demon, is training Wormwood. And screw tape says this. We want very much. To make men treat Christianity as a means. Preferably, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. But failing that, as a means to anything. And then he just gives an example of social justice. The thing to do is get a man, at first, to value social justice as a thing which the enemy, that is God, demands. And then work him 
then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. And then he says this, because the enemy God will not be used as a convenience. God will not be used as a convenience. You know why? Because life is first and foremost and always about God. And he will not be used as a means and as a convenience. And that is why at the end of this great presentation of the gospel of God and God's plan for the ages, in the doxology that's at the end of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, Paul penned these words, From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so I ask you this, and we'll continue next week, friends. Is Jesus enough for you? What's the thing or person that you have on your list that Jesus has to fulfill before he gets your all? And if there's something or person on that list, then Jesus is not enough. And Jesus is being used as a means, as, as a convenience. And Jesus, when you do this, when you fulfill this, then. And God says, no, I will not be used as a means or a convenience for anyone. I will be glorified and I will be served and I will be worshipped simply for who I am. Your creator and your redeemer. And if you trust in him, your father. So, friends, that's the kind of heresy that's pervading our land and even the world. I know it has made some inroads for some of our people. Because I will hear folks from time to time say that they watched such and such. And they enjoy watching such and such. And as your pastor, it occurs to me that it's my responsibility to make sure you know what that's about. You know what the danger in that is. So we're going to continue that in the next week or two. We'll continue to fill out this outline. In the meantime, we're going to bow and we're going to pray. And as we do, as always, there are two groups of people. One group of people in this room are people who don't have a relationship with God, do not have the Holy Spirit who has made them spiritually alive and therefore are not attuned to this idea that God is paramount and God is priority. That doesn't resonate with you. If that doesn't resonate with you at all, it's because you're not his child, because you've not been made alive spiritually. It's our prayer that this moment would be that time where you would recognize your tendency to move away from the God who made you, and toward your own way. It's sin to devise your own plan and your own way and your own priorities. And so realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ paid the debt 
for that sin and repent. Lord, I'm going to enthrone you, dethrone myself. I'm going to go your way and not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in a moment. When we do, you pray in your own words to God. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm living for myself and not for the God who made me. I see this as sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to begin changing me from the inside out. I'm going to go your way, no longer my way. Then those of us here who do know Christ, who do have a relationship with him, but perhaps we've recognized in our own hearts the allure of if God does for me, then I'll do for him. That we recognize that, in fact, Jesus is not enough. And until he does this thing or these things, he's not going to get my all. That's sin that needs to be repented of. Let's bow together before the Lord. Oh, our Father, we come to you with mixed emotions, troubled. Troubled by the false teaching that is so pervasive. But Lord, at the same time, delighted that you have given us your truth. You've given us the light of your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit so that we can grasp the significance of what you teach in that word for us. And Lord, this is all because of you. If not for you, then we go along blindly. Then we are lost. Then we are open to any teaching and every wind of doctrine. Lord, you have given us your word so that we are not tossed to and fro by every teaching that comes along. That you are making us mature people in Christ so that we evaluate what we hear according to the standard of your word. This is all you're doing. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time to be able to expose false teaching, but exalt your truth. And Lord, we believe all of this is only possible because you have called us out of the world and to yourself. Thank you for saving us, delivering us, rescuing us from our ignorance, from our blindness, from our lostness.